The question is, do you have any any uh, other uh, sources or explanations or rumors or fairy or tales thoughts. about the origin of um, of uh, now called SARS CoV two, formerly known as the artist COVID nineteen? Sources other than. Question mark? Well, other animals, other, I don't know, you know, new theories. No. Other, I mean, also just, I want to grab the conversation maybe at a later stage to, to sort of think about why all of these reasons are popping up. But that might be, be a later question for us. Well, zoonosis seems to be sort of the issue, right? What's that? Viruses spreading from animals to humans. And we've had plenty of zoonosis throughout history. Um, AIDS being one of them, or HIV uh, being one of them. But what with our sort of animal husbandry and, and sort of trångbodhet, this wonderful Swedish word. What's the comparison in, or what's the comparative word in English? Living in close quarters just doesn't cut it as good as trångbodhet. Right? But, well, okay. Sure. He's just silent. But so, I guess that's sort of the rational, logical um, reasoning behind these viruses popping up, spreading from, if it's not bird flu, it's swine flu. If it's not swine flu, it's SARS CoV2, which apparently then is bat related, if I am correct in what I've been reading. Mm. Yes or no? Yeah, well, <clears throat> it's a, for me, it's a really uh, fascinating and very rich line of inquiry because exactly like this uh, uh, conspiracy theory part, it's intriguing how, <clears throat> yeah, there's kind of like layers of, um, of, uh, enthusiasm and dimensions of blame um, that sort of range from uh, weird conspiracy theories to uh, broadly speaking scientific reasoning around these issues um, and commonly uh, they all sort of seem for me to reflect a, a, a a theme that we've come up with before, you know, that there are a number of, of ways of thinking about the world, about existence that um, serve as uh, almost as, as, as a priori facts, as, as uh, assumed universal truths to help us deal with the things that we come up with. So, for example, there's, uh, uh, if you get a, 
sort of one level slightly away from conspiracy theory. There's a huge amount of material um, in the press about China the bad guy. Okay, so this is not just conspiracy stuff, this is China the bad guy. Um, and China the bad guy has got a sidekick called Russia the bad guy. So if we're not actually apportioning blame about uh, the origin of the virus, um, just in pure uh, epidemiological terms, not even talking about whether or not it was a manufactured crisis or not, um, the next line of discussion is how are China and Russia going to exploit their advantage geopolitically uh, since the virus has spread everywhere, et cetera, et cetera. You know? So we, we're kind of very much into that blame frame scene. And we tend to cloak this as an investigation of causality, like so much else. So, uh, gee, the virus was noticed in China, so um, it must have been the Chinese that created it. And like most of these conspiracy theory type of thinkings, so I'm going to kind of put these into the same category, you know, um, that on the extreme end have to do with, um, yeah, you know, the storm or <laughs> whatever we're going to call that end. But on the, on the other end of the scale is this idea that um, there are um, lesser beings amongst humans who really have very unfortunate habits that lead to these kind of, of consequences. And now you see what you've done, now you've spoiled it for everybody. And these, these themes are really interesting. And as you say, Helena, the, the, the causal stuff is, is oriented around um, the phenomena of, of diseases spreading from humans to animals. But I mean, from in, animals in, to humans. From, from, from animals to humans. And in, 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 in the literature, when you kind of get into this, it's quite obvious that the spread of disease from animal to human goes back to paleontological times. I mean, we're talking about something that has happened since Neanderthal times. But the other side is also true. Humans have infected many species with disease. Oh, Jesus. Uh, the conspiracy thickens, you know. Um, so who's killing who here? Um, or is there really uh, a embodied conscious point of view that we can enter into in which we can say this is not about assuming empirical positioning, but trying to uh, uh, actually enter into process view trying to understand these events as emergent in the same way that uh, the human species is continuously undergoing emergent transformational, sometimes faster, sometimes slower states of evolutionary being. And the stuff that's up on the surface, the sort of primary identifiable uh, identificatory stuff where we can take sides and say, well, I'm a scientist and, uh, you know, COVID-19 is this and this and that. Um, that's kind of fun because it, it does release me from any responsibility. 
it does make me feel like I have this uh, sort of rational, autonomous power over the world. I'm in a state of dominion. I can identify and I can point at and I can correlate and I can find the causal issues and then that's quite satisfying. Um, but it doesn't really, um, it doesn't really stick when we start to unpack uh, the, the extent of this. So yeah, um, a huge, huge, huge number of, of infectious diseases have resulted from animal to human transfer as a result of, for example, agriculture. So the, 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 the kind of curve just goes whoosh, up into the sky as soon as you start domesticating animals. And it doesn't really have such a huge uh, uh, impact as to which animals. It doesn't matter whether it's cattle or uh, uh, goats or domesticating cats. Um, these habits and their systemic effects have caused results. And the fact that we ascribe positive or negative qualities to these results have more to do with culture than they have to do with science. And I think it kind of um, very easily leads us to think about things that are really not that essential. So this week in Alberta, in Canada, for example, they decided that um, tar sands is an essential service. The oil workers in tar sands are qualified as an essential service. You've got to laugh. I mean, that's, uh, that's really, that's seriously strong Kool-Aid. It's wonderful stuff. And of course, people will, will, will possibly get wound up that I, that I laugh about this because there, there is this relatively obvious argument that says the economy is more important than human life. And you've got to sort of stop from it and think, well, uh, really? Isn't the economy a result of human life? Sorry, did, did I miss something? The, the economy precedes human life. Human life emerges evolutionarily out of economy. That's a spectacular well, new let's go with that. Darwin. Let's go with that then, because I'm I'm curious to to see where where that where that line of thought gets us. Yeah. Just just to really break it down. So. Yes, the human or the economy system is built from from human life, or it's you know a result of human life, or or a byproduct, if, if you will. Um, but at this stage, it also includes, it takes care of, it, it provides for a lot of human lives. A lot of human lives are, are hung up on the global economy. So, so rather, saving the, the economy might save suffering for a bigger population than the suffering for for the people suffering from COVID-19. Yeah, okay. That might be an argument. Yeah. And so yeah, in that it's, case, it's saving the economy... It's one that's been heard a lot. Yeah, yeah, I would say so too. And in that case, why wouldn't it make more sense to, to save the economy, would you say? If, if also the premise is we can only save one. 
We can only save one. Yeah, we, it's either the economy or human lives, which is pretty much the uh, the discourse right now. Yeah. So how is this argument different, for example, to slavery? Oh. That oh, shit. A, that was a sudden jump. Yeah. Schmack. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. So we saved the economy by uh, just basically, um, how should we pay? Say, using up millions of lives, of slave lives. How is that different? Should we have uh, avoided slavery um, and uh, skipped the economy? Just wondering, you know. If we're going to put, put life against economy, there are some good examples that we can use as comparative. Hmm. I have a hard time seeing that jump. Slavery to, to modern economy. Well... Um, well yeah, Helena. I I listened to the pod. Was it eighteen oh nine or eighteen eleven or eighteen sixteen or something? By was it New York Times or well, yeah, some someone. It's gotten a lot of flack for being not factual and not sort of really uh, stretching the the sort of the corollaries that they're taking in it, the the correlations that they're making, but one of the premises that I'm sort of getting from, from listening to that, which is about slavery in a sense, sort of from an American point of view, but is that it seems, it seems quite true uh, with ear rabbit ears, um, in my view, that slavery has been a large accelerator for what is today our human economy. So it's an interesting question that, because you could say, I mean, I'm a naive Swede. Of course, I wish we would not have slavery, that it had never happened. It has, it still exists. It's existed just like you say, with, with the zoonosis stuff, it's existed forever. Sort of, it's, it's you know, thousands of years there's been slavery, but, but the slavery of the past two, three hundred years really uh, perhaps was one of the main ingredients for making part of the world as rich as it is utilizing the labor and the lives of, of, uh, of others less fortunate. Hmm. Yeah, it's a crucial ingredient in establishing monopoly privileges. This was some high-level tankespion here.
because slavery still exists. Yeah. And if we're going to push that line and consider it, the economy is something that is massively driven by consumerism. Yeah? And the, the consumer watchdog um, associations, and I'll find you a reference for, for what I'm about to say, suggest that up to 30% of consume, consumer goods that are, that are bought and used by, uh, above all, Western economies, 30% are produced by slave labor today. 30%, yeah? So let's get back to the question, is it life or is it economy? Is this a, a, a reasonable uh, uh, juxtaposition? Mm. Are we in the right arena here? Or are we just setting up a situation where we're completely being led into an argument to say, we have to continue our economic activity that is obviously leading to a future where we have scorched earth, little plastic bubbles that we live in with, uh, you know, um, air produced by some sort of chemical process. Um, that's really important because it saves lives. The economy saves lives. Can lives be saved? Can we answer these questions philosophically? Is it possible to deal with these principles? I'm not sure, but to me there's something deeply uncomfortable in these, in these uh, issues. And it really doesn't have to do with whether or not we're going to let the 80-year-olds die. To me, it has to do with whether or not we're going to carry on doing the things that are going to make the now millennials seriously fucking ill by the time they're 60. So at the time... The, there was a film made called um, uh, I'm going to have a difficulty translating this. It's called Underkastelse um, in Swedish. Um, the, the oppressed, I think, probably, or something like that. Do you know what it is? No? Um, so the film examines uh, uh, chemical... Uh, elements, chemical trace elements um, in the human body. Was it that a Swedish actress? It's a Swedish filmmaker. It's a documentary. I'm going to look up the word. So the film, it's like a sort of a supersized me. It's called Submission. Uh, subjection, subservience, these are all uh, translations of the word. So uh, the film examines the presence of uh, chemical trace elements in, in, in human organisms uh, that are foreign to the human organism. And one of the, the, the really unfortunate realities that the, the, the film points to is that there's an average of 130 trace elements in the body of a newborn baby that are not natural. Yes. It was that Swedish actress who was pregnant. I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. 
So this is the economy saving lives. Yeah, this is or like... Or maybe... Or maybe not, ironically. Mm. But this is the economy at work. This is this big uh, hidden hand thing that's at work. Now, we believe things about this hidden hand not because they are scientific, but because we believe them, because we've been told them, because they've been repeated over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And I, I'm, I'm in no way opposed to making difficult decisions about that, ooh, we can't do this because that leads to that. Um, we can save this one thing today, but it will lead to more serious effects later on down the line. Uh, it's just, you know, one of those uh, wonderful gifts that are that come with a package. We're capable of, of long-term projection. We can think strategically. Um, all really great, you know. I'm just kind of baffled by that the voices that are speaking up for not putting the resources into sick people today are also the, 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 the voices that say, gee, we should really export all of our uh, uh, polluting industries to Africa because, you know, African men don't live that long to get prostate cancer. They'll, they'll be dead by the time they're 65 anyway. So that's a better place to pollute. This is a direct quote of Obama's uh, uh, Secretary of the Treasury. Oh, fuck, you know, yeah, it's uncomfortable shit, but um, how is this different to slavery? I think some of that stuff from a, a, a long arc of history perspective is to say, well, that whole humanity thing, you know, um, it's not so humane. We've pretty much always thought of collateral damage as okay, as long as it's not us. The game theory, monkey business thing, the kind of rivalrous, competition-based way the view of the world has dominated in principle every historic age that we've documented. We spice it up with nice stuff about democracy and liberty and personal freedoms, and of course those things do exist, and it's, it's amazing that they do, where they do, when they do. But it's not the, that's not the default state. The default state is exploitation. Is that a default state in the sense that it is inevitable? I don't think so, no. I think it's a, a cultural default state at the moment. Mm. Has it been a cultural default state for sort of these past millennia? Again, I don't know. There are many exceptions. Thank you. That's sort of where the little bell of hope can ring. There's hope in the dark. <laughs> Yay. Thank you. It's not that dark. You know. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to sort of get that sense. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's kind of uh, part of the, and this is not for me that there's some evil mothers out there sort of 
trying to scare the shit out of you so that you'll say, oh, that's a much worse scenario. We take the economy. Um, I don't, you know. Uh, I, I think it's just a, a habit, a, a habit of thought. Same as with uh, the too-big-to-fail banks. It's just nonsense, but really the, the, the fear factor gets driven up to absurdum. So that in the end, everybody says, we don't have a choice, we don't have a choice. No, you don't, because, not because you don't have a choice, but because you've entered into a state of learned helplessness. One of the things that sort of I keep trying to remind myself of is this fact that the long arcs of history are at play here. That the, the result, the outcome of this global pandemic that we are in right now on March of 2020 will sort of play out in, in hundreds of years that I can see um, sort of my utopia, which is not that scorched dirt with the plastic bubbles, but rather sort of what you're pointing to, these exceptions that we could come to one of those exceptions again and, and sort of make that happen. And it's like, I want to live it. I want to see it happen. But, but if that is to happen or if your scorched earth reality will be happening, likelihood is it's 300 years in the future. It's 500 years in the future. You know, I mean, the, the long arcs of history. And that's something I have to remind myself of, that it's not... It feels so now, but likely it's not now. But, but what happens now is, is sort of, you know, it affects the, the direction of those long arcs, sort of where will they fall, mm. right? And I think also that part of, of that reality is that there are instances where it is now. There are significant parts of the earth. They are not in the majority, but there is scorched earth happening now. That's not just cleared forest, that is uninhabitable. For whatever reason, you know, but um, industrialism is a <laughs> generally sort of you, you back up the, the, um, the causal aspects and a lot of them get to this point of industrialism and industrialism is not some kind of natural law, it's a cultural effect. What would be the natural law in that case? 
because I'm I'm thinking we we're talking a lot about you know nature's way of doing things and and our natural inhabitat and and you know these babies with 130 unnatural elements in them what what is what what can we define as natural in nature for human beings because i mean i would argue that that culture cultural well culture is is natural for human beings we've had it for a very long time it's just differed uh in in our eyes of you know a lot in others eyes not very much um so you know in from from that perspective the everything that is going on every every impact that humans have on nature is natural because it's a cultural by you know byproduct and i i don't know if cuz a lot of my friends and a lot of you know environmental activists and people who are who are caring about the environment and and nature mother nature would say that a lot of the things that humans are doing is unnatural and and i've tried to argue that that it's not you know wanting to extend life isn't unnatural wanting to feed all of the people in the world by by almost any means necessary isn't isn't unnatural mm. Yet again, I think we're we're falling back to claiming that that some parts of the human experience, some part of the human element, is is more natural than the other. I don't know, there's, in, in nature, <laughs> um, there are sort of elements, building blocks that we can use to, to, to make, to create, to clothe ourselves, to feed ourselves, to heat, um, heat our houses, to build stuff and, and and such and and some of those elements are not very good for you there's lots of of sort of poisonous and and um, you know dangerous for life um, elements on earth in nature Uh, 
And there is amongst those sort of unnatural building blocks that humans have invented as well. Well, would an example of those unnatural building blocks be just to just to really grasp this? Would penicillin be be one of those? No. No. Penicillin is is highly natural. It's, it's yeah. Well, you know, some would argue it's unnatural to be able to cure diseases. That that's just why I'm asking. Well, so what would be one I, of those? I would say penicillin is is one of those ethnopharmacological medicines that actually have been used for a long, long, long time, way before Alexander Fleming discovered it. But there are other sort of chemicals, there are other, you know, where we are the ones who have taken sort of atoms, molecules, and, and put them together and created, I don't know, CFCs, chlorf, whatever they're called, those carbon fluoride stuff it's like and and teflon i think teflon would probably be a perfect example of this it is a wonderful creation you know shit it works magic it's it's super snazzy for use in in a lot a wide range of stuff but it's as if Again, when, when sort of modern man, man after industrialism, everything goes exponential. So a little bit of Teflon would probably not have been such a bad thing. You know, it, it wouldn't have made any difference. But, but the amount of Teflon all of a sudden makes it hard because we have put something into nature lots of ear bunny bunny ears today um where those aren't sort of you know they don't break down as far as we know they're here period and it's it's as if there's some some weird type of balance issue there The, the stuff that's been around, that's been dangerous, asbestos is, is a natural, not so very good stuff if you sort of breathe it into your lungs and stuff. But it works wonders where it works, you know? It can be a really good element to have. Or useful. Useful, in, precisely. In, in, in. Precisely. In, in the right sort of setting, it, its uh, characteristics are very useful. But here we put something in and we don't sort of just do it a little bit. We do so much of it. And it's not just Teflons. That's just one example. There's like mm. all of these things that we're putting into a system without giving it time to sort of find equilibrium again find mm. okay this is how we do it okay i can dance with this yeah one might <clears throat> find some uh some principles in many of these 
issues like asbestos or Teflon um, by unpacking what, they, what, what the motivation is to produce these things, what kind of need is being met, is there a need that's being met, um, how do they arise, what, what are the, the origins of these discoveries, and so on and so on. And a lot of, of that stuff, at least um, from uh, industrialization forward, it's, it's, it's not difficult to see. Um, because a lot of it has to do with competitive advantage. It has to do with dominance. Um, so, yeah, it's useful, but the, the, the mechanism, I think we, we kind of have come to call it something like disruption. Um, you know, that you, you disrupt the market by having a new product. So CFCs um, that you mentioned completely upend the salt market because you can refrigerate food. Um, mm. So prior to that, salt, I mean, salt was mined uh, for many people uh, completely, um, uh, how should one say, uh, um, uh, salt as, a, as an element um, implied disaster for many people. Uh, slavery is something that uh, uh, sort of makes the salt industry gain enormous um, presence. But salt, although something amazingly useful, uh, becomes in the hands of human economy an instrument of dominance. It gets upended uh, partly by electricity and um, a more or less uh, uh, simultaneous discovery of, of uh, hydrocarbons in the form of, of oil. Um, and salt loses its, 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 its dominance in world economy in a very, very short time. But enormous amounts of geopolitical issues uh, were based around salt. But refrigeration, CFC, et cetera, et cetera, takes that away and suddenly dominates. So I'm kind of wanting to point at the, the presence of domination, that the, the ideas around economy have very much to do with advantage, domination, monopoly, uh, maintenance of, of, of position. And in order to do that, there's no real barrier to what sort of weapons you can use, and weapons are the issue here. Weaponization is, is, is part of the expression of, of human presence on Earth. We do weapons. And there's no other, there is no other uh, uh, species that does weapons like humans. Humans weaponize everything in some way or another. That's how we dominate. That's how we kind of reach our competitive advantage. And yeah, sometimes the weapons are really, really obvious stuff, you know, whether it's um, uh, nuclear attacks or uh, whatever. Sometimes it's bioweapons. Um, but I mean, bioweapons have been around for a very, very long time. Very unpleasant business, you know, throwing a few um, 
smallpox blankets at the poor. Um, nothing strange, poisoning wells. Um, you know, this is stuff that we do, that we understand. And we understand these leverages in ways that no other species understands. Now that capacity to understand leverage, I think is what lies behind the issue of should we really be shutting down society um, to save a few lives when we should be thinking that uh, this, is, this is negative leverage. We are now leveraging the suffering and death of many, many more because the economy isn't running the way that it should. Um, and I'm not arguing for one or the other. I'm simply saying there's a way of thinking around this that's really consistent throughout history. We use this argument all the time. It's not strange for me that the, the, the issues around um, the, the uh, coronavirus orient around weaponization, around competitive advantage. Um, because this is our predominant discussion. How do we do this? How do we, how do we gain the, the monopoly over everybody else? How do we gain this rivalrous advantage. Well, obviously, it's about creating a, a video tool that's very, very popular when, when everyone has to sit indoors. <laughs> Zoom. <laughs> yeah. The bastards. <laughs> Wish I thought of that. I think Skype does too. That they thought of it? Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, they, um, they do report all of the cloud services that they, they're very happy about the virus. <clears throat> of course they are. So to come back to the, the issue of is this natural? Mm, well, gee. I would definitely say no. I'm kind of in the in the 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 camp of um, the alchemists that speak about um, consciousness as a a work against nature. So, what is it that you say is not natural? Well, that uh, the the evolutionary picture for every other species other than humans is that nobody gains more dominance than what everybody else can evolve into being able to withstand. So um, if, if lions run faster, then everybody else runs a little bit faster within a reasonably short space of time. Evolution sort of occurs yeah. more or less across the entire field. And then there's these, these mm -hmm. spikes and events and unusual things that happen. Um, but in general, there is no complete imbalance of, of advantage. Mm -hmm. The exception to the rule is human innovation. Which is the savior, right? Isn't that what we've been told as well? Well, Human yeah, innovation and, will save us. Yeah, and uh, yeah. well, it, it may well, it has the potential to do so. I would just say we won the game. You'd what? I'd just say we won the game. Humans. Mm -hmm. Help fuck the system. You know, if lions run faster, we invite, invent wheels. 
know, we, we broke the system of evolution, of competitive advantage. We broke the system that's called nature. Yeah. Which we call nature, absolutely. Exactly. And that's, that's our construct. It's a, a cultural construct. And I think a lot of these issues help if we place them not in the realm of nature, but in the realm of culture. Mm. The epistemologies, the, the how we know what we know. So there's plenty of Kool-Aid around to be had, sort of continuing this, this then sort of ongoing process of speaking in, in terms of dominance and in terms of we have to win the war against coronavirus and, and you know, people are at the forefront and whatnot. What are some other conversations to be had and where are they had? Are they being held somewhere? By whom and how? And where can one find them? Mm. Okay, so what's the back, what, what are the conversations that can be had? Well, um, again, I think the, 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 the thing about these sort of events is um, let's do small. Hmm. Let's talk you and me. Let's uh, have a conversation with our neighbor, uh, with your wife, with your husband, with your kids. With my Buddhas with your Buddhas, but it's, it's kind of about this intimate contact that also is part of the human spectrum. The relational, the stuff that's not dominational, that's relational, that says, I am because of you, you are because of me. Yeah? I'm a person because of other people. So kind of uh, exploring the, the, the underlying issues of personhood, of being, of belonging, um, that are also part of that dominator culture, in which uh, the degree to which you dominate defines um, your, your, your belonging in the world. There's another sort of completely different side to that, where it's about, well, I don't have anything different to what you have to offer. But if we can put together what we do, that's probably going to make more than the sum of the parts. I think on um, and not or um, another conversation that, that would be quite important to have is is to connect not only being but ego to this because there's a lot of ego manifesting in in the world right now especially in this question of nature or lives or or economy because obviously as as someone who's probably not going to die from this virus i could pretty comfortably say let's save the economy because that's comfortable mm. and and it's not my life no, I'm not putting 
my life on the risk here. Um, so I'm going to protect myself. I could suffer a great deal if if the economy collapses, but you know I'm not going to not going to care about the the thousands of people dying in Italy or U.S. or wherever wherever they are. Um, which you know I think could be I don't want to say cured, but but sort of nuanced by by the conversation you're mentioning Dominic about about talking to your neighbor talking to to people around you about being about you know you and I because uh, that's going to change things for me in my ego going to let me change perspectives I was listening to an episode of The Daily by New York Times and they, you know, in an episode on, on New York City closing down, sort of, and they were interviewing this taxi driver who was a man from Argentina who had been living in the U.S. for 47 years. He was 72 or 73 years old and, and driving his taxi, um, you know, with a mask on and one of the windows rolled down and Lysol wipes and sprays and stuff to protect him. And talking about that and, you know, he was asked the question, but wait, you're 73. Why are you driving taxi? I mean, you're, you're the, you're one of the risk factors, sort of, you know, risk groups stay inside. And he was like, well, he'd been I think he'd been working as a um, person putting gold on stuff, on, on frames for paintings and sort of um, the, the basis for sculptures and stuff. And he said he'd fallen a couple of years ago and hurt his back. And the only position that works for him is to sit down. That's when he's not in pain. So he had thought, what can I do sitting down and come up with the answer? Taxi driver. And she was still, yeah, but you're 73. I mean, you know, you're sort of way past retirement age. And he was like, well, you know, the pension system, you know, it's like, if I don't work, I do not have money to pay for grocery. I do not have money to pay my rent. And it was just, so again, this normal that we're seeking, this system, this economy that is saving everybody. It's like, yeah, it really isn't. You could say that it is saving him because he's working and hence he can pay his bills, but he has been working and he's old and should not be driving a cab and has to because of the economy. <laughs> so, Well, the economy is also creating... Um, um you know, Jan has, has picked up on this a couple of times, the 40-40-40. Someone tricks you into this, yeah. basically, yeah. yeah. Um, so what, what it basically is that you, you work 40 hours a week for 40 years of your life to live off of 40% of your wage when you, when you stop working. Mm. 
I mean, the, the economy is creating that as well. Yeah. For a lot of people. Yeah, and there is, uh, uh, th th there's a lot of underlying uh, uh, assumptions that just don't hold, you know, that, that we actually have to do this, that you have to earn a living. There's no sort of uh, uh, basic justified existence um, like for other species. Uh, humans are the exception. You actually have to work to live. You have to earn your life. Every day, you know, you have to go and uh, make some money or whatever. And I mean, even those things are deeply confusing and, 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 and rooted in this idea that somehow economy is a natural law. And if you come to, you know, back that up to what is uh, uh, these unassailably natural things, i.e. not made by man. So this is, this is Georgist uh, uh, materialism. So the, the Henry George presents this idea of saying, well, anything that's not made by human hands cannot be owned by humans. So water, land, air, etc., is not made by humans but it's used by humans. Mm. And whatever you use, somebody else can't use. You've monopolized it. And for that privilege, you should pay rent. Yeah, you have to kind of uh, pay your way for your usage of um, natural resources in whatever form they are. And this as a basis for a genuine egalitarianism. So this is not a, um, a sort of tricksy liberal idea that um, allows for the continual parallel existence of some kind of economic reality that's going to be managed by maintaining monopoly privileges. This is saying that whatever monopoly privilege you have, that advantage has got to be shared with everybody equally. So this is the sense in which, um, you know, there's a lot of argument about how people's life work is, is uh, uh, being ruined by the virus. But that life work is actually made possible by several generations before them doing their life work and paying taxes and creating infrastructures and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the... the the materialist view of, of, of Henry George has to do with that any advantage that you get out of the infrastructural reality of nature, of natural elements, has got to be shared um, through paying rent to a state coffer, which is, is then distributed via um, the, the thoughts today around, for example, a basic universal income um, or a, uh, uh, in, in Canada, for example, they have a, an, an oil fund that pays out. It's not a lot of money. It's like $1,200 a year. Um, these are examples of this. And they, they have been amazingly uh, detailed research into why, uh, what's commonly called land value tax, 
um, actually answers some of these issues that we're raising here. That we can separate out what are the cultural issues and what are the resource issues and how do these things evolve? Because most of these, these problems around weaponization, around uh, geopolitics, around uh, uh, political economy, around social politics, have to do with inequality and it almost always bottoms in monopoly privilege of some kind. And monopoly privilege has to do with dominance. In order for that not to be the result, in order for us not to be in the scorched earth result, we have to find a way that monopoly privilege is not seen as some sort of Darwinian law of nature. Um, Survival but, of the fittest. Well, yeah, but that monopoly privilege is something that is part of the human process, has to be acknowledged as that integrated into human process in such a way that it is actually life-affirming across the spectrum of the entire range of, of organic and inorganic life. Then it becomes irrelevant to ask whether we're going to save the economy or life, because it's a nonsense question. Because the question being posed to you is, is completely unfair. It's saying, should we preserve monopoly privileges mm. when you know that if we don't preserve monopoly privileges, um, a certain number of people will die? So should we save a few old fogies now or should we preserve monopoly privileges because um, fewer people will become... Uh, uh, unemployed or homeless, etc., etc. Recently, the, the, <laughs> I read an article that cites a, a uh, I think it's a Lancet article that says that there were half a million more cases of cancer after the 2008 financial crash, all of which is possible, but nobody investigates whether this is a correlation or a causal view. So we don't ask what actually lies behind the environment that leads to people getting cancer. Mm. Which, oddly enough, has to do with this expression of monopoly privilege that we call the economy. And we're probably going to be confronted with many of these kind of... of Misleading questions in your life, you know. The, there's a, <laughs> a, a classic um, training for, for uh, interview, people that are going to be interviewed, you know. Um, so politicians and media people, etc., etc. There's lots of PR firms that can help you seem more professional on camera and etc. and how to deal with difficult questions. One of the difficult questions that gets asked is, when are you going to stop hitting your spouse? Hmm. Well, how do you answer that? Well, because nothing that, be that you day. say. I beg your pardon? Tomorrow would be, would be a good day to Well, stop. That, that admits that you hit your spouse. Of course. 
Who doesn't you, married? You, you get the point that, yeah. Um, yeah, you, the you know, these are, uh, 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 what do they call it, syllogisms. Mm. In Swedish, herska technique. So when you're being put in a position where um, your concern for um, health care for a certain part of the population implies um, that you don't care about anybody else uh, is, is one of these kind of syllogisms. You're in an impossible position. You can only agree. And by agreeing, you can only lose. That's also very, very well established in human culture, something that we do all of the time, consciously, unconsciously, etc. What to do about it? Well, you have to raise it into the light of day. You know, this is Hercules with a hydra. You've got to lift the thing up. It doesn't help to cut the head off because two more appear. I have a sense that a lot of people have never given thought to your um, to what you state now as the economy as it is today is not life affirming, life giving, life. I don't know what but rather kind of the opposite in, in many cases. Because I think many people would, would sort of take the, the small, the short perspective there, saying, well, I go to work and I get paid and hence I can pay for groceries and hence I live right so you sort of you you take that the per, the perspective of me sort of in in my life it is in my life economy does provide life So that, and then saying the economy as it stands today is not life-affirming. It's like, that's a big jump. Um, and I think it's a big jump because people don't see how their me perspective could be any different than it is. I have to go to work. Mm -hmm. Right? 
That's what this 73-year-old man, in the taxi driver in New York was saying. Mm. I have to work. And that is a consensus reality. We all agree with that, me included. If I don't pay my rent, then I don't have shelter. Yeah. I can't buy food, you know. Uh, that's the reality that we all have agreed to support. It's not that this is the reality, it's our consensus reality. We agree that this is the system we participate in. And people say, oh yeah, well, you know, uh, that's just reality. Well, actually, it's not just reality. Um, you could look at something like um, the UN commissioned a, a study on food as commons. And it makes for really, really interesting reading. You know? And it, it, it's, it's, it's something that winds people up a lot to suggest that food should be given out for free because it's a, it's a right, it's a commons right, you know. So not even to start getting into the issue of um, the myth of the commons and bloody blah, blah um, because this is one of those uh, save the economy stupid um, arguments around the myth of the commons. But the UN commissioned this, this, this um, study on the viability and impact of um, food um, sustenance not being part of a transactional monetized economy as a basic human uh, right uh, and what kind of effects this has. It's totally amazing stuff, you know. It's mm. a, um, as an extension of our earlier uh, discussion on materialist philosophers. Marx is also a materialist philosopher, but he's kind of working at the other end of the scale to Henry George. So a different way to talk about this is to talk about how um, the commons, um, the idea of uh, common rights, common spaces, common resources are a basis for a uh, relational-based worldview that is, is, is affirming across the spectrum of life so that access to the commons um, implies not some sort of competitive advantage, but some sort of anti-rivalrous participatory uh, uh, responsibility in the sense not of guilt, but of enabling active engagement in regenerative life-affirming practice. And I think the trauma around this is, is coming to terms with the fact that knowingly or unknowingly, we choose something else. We say we don't choose. We say we have no choice. I don't have a choice. I have to have a house. Mm. In order to have a house, I have to earn money. I have to find some way to earn money. And, and that's that me perspective that, that you're talking about. Um, what are the alternatives to that me perspective? Well, if you look at religious communities are probably um, the only comparative index that we have to look at, say, uh, the Amish, where individualism is knowingly, consciously, willingly um, given up or subjected to 
being part of a body of practice. So this is where people cease to be an I in the sense of economic man, where I autonomously can develop dominance over others through my clever innovations um, into being part of a larger body of life, acting in, 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 in the service of a, a greater good through your very existence. through your daily activity, through uh, uh, a series of, of premises about uh, what is more important than me, me, me. Not because uh, you somehow are aesthetic, uh, um, ascetic is the word, um, in that, you, that you're being stoic and giving up stuff and withstanding discomfort, but because um, there is a... a reportedly from within the, the, the range of experiences that people report, that there is an enormous liberation, that there is an actual state of human existence to achieve when being in relation is the default, as opposed to seeking domination or seeking competitive advantage as the default. Now, consensus reality says Seeking competitive advantage, or at least making sure that you that you're avoiding disadvantage, uh, that's your your basic uh, uh, starting point. If you don't do that, you won't be able to pay your rent. You'll end up in the in the flop house. I wonder if there's like a parallel universe where the coronavirus has just stricken and, and the Georgist uh, sort of humanity uh, is, is just coping with it, just doing what needs to be done without the economy stupid because that's not an issue. Like shit. What would that be like? If that sense of if that's if that sort of I have to get what I need to get in order to sustain life for me. If that was not sort of on me, if that was to be had, boy, will we have different conversations then. In that yeah. universe, there's different conversations being had. Really different conversations being had. Undoubtedly. That's my new utopia. How can we get there? Can we get there? 
is it is it sort of is it feasible is it possible can humanity you know sort of the road we're taking is there a detour says i don't know what we should call it utopia to the right 500 kilometers what how do we get there is it this reach out to your neighbor and start talking then it'll be 50,000 light years away and not just 500 kilometers perhaps but well i'm not going to start talking to my neighbors <laughs> anyhow <laughs> they don't even say hi to me when i enter the building do you say hi to them yes you do good yes you the crazy guy that says hi you, every yeah, time you precisely. see someone precisely that's good you know that's how Stick i grew up it, out in Oxia, i said hi to anyone i crossed yeah i do too i smile at people too it's really weird well yeah i know people look at me and go what no but all, all jokes aside i think i think having those conversations is a is a good start mm -hmm. If not with your neighbors, so, so with other people around you. Because, but one of the one of the problems that I face, one of the mm, sort of one of the rocks that I bump my stone my foot into, you know is the fact that when I start to speak about this utopia, I see something else. You guys can handle it, but, but most people just look at me and say, how do we get there? I was like, I don't know. What would I look like in reality? It's like, I don't know. I just know that I can see it as, as, as a possibility. Help me talk about it in such a way that we can perhaps together find small little ways to get there but don't tell me you have to say you know this is the 128 point project plan to get there because i don't have it <laughs> i could get that you could get that good <laughs> we'll just delegate that to you then caspian well, <clears throat> if you did have the 128-point plan, what do you think would happen then? Well, if I did? Yeah, Helena, when you sort of say that, that people want that plan, well, what do you think will happen People would then? dissect it and say why it wouldn't work. Exactly. Yeah. It wouldn't work. Yeah. yeah. So I'm screwed if I do, I'm screwed if I don't. Sort exactly. Of. Yes. So if we back this up Bummer. into sort of human states, then for me, the thing is not so much about that we have to have conversations about uh, an alternative vision. We have to talk about that we see the world through filters of trauma, loss, threat, um, insufficiency, lack. Um, Fear. You know, this is the, these are the conversations we have to have. It's not about going to my neighbor and say, you know, if we were friends, we could kind of fix your roof. Because the neighbor will say, yeah, if we were friends. But we're not. 
<laughs> and we could sort of talk about a million projects that we could do. Yeah, if, gee, if we could only get it together, but it would never work. Why not? Well, because, you know, we've got a 128-point plan that explains why, well, uh, that's black work, so it's untaxed and, you know, blah 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 um, But if you go to your neighbor and say, um, you know, I've been really afraid to come and talk to you. Uh -huh. Why that? Uh, yeah, well, uh, I'm unsure whether it's just because I'm, I'm shy or whether I'm afraid of rejection or whether I've seen you be angry with your wife or, um, but, you know, that's the predominant experience I have is that I'm, I'm afraid that this is going to go wrong. Oh, fuck. Like, now we're in another arena. But that arena is, is, is full of the stuff that makes the consensus reality more comfortable than the thing that we should be dealing with. The threat, the, the, the uh, knowing that, that, that going Turkey is so deeply uncomfortable um, just doesn't allow you to stop taking the heroin, you know. It's like, <laughs> can't we just do one more day? And getting into this kind of state of, of, of vulnerability, of insufficiency of failure, weakness, that's the conversation. That's the conversation. Not how damn good it's going to become because that's where we run to. That's where we avoid. That's why we go to Instagram. What are we looking for on Instagram? It's inspiration. Um. <laughs> he says in his angelic voice, and you just know he's going to... Any second. <laughs> so yeah, much content in that in that voice. I can't even handle it. A little bit of bloodletting. You know. Inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> so those conversations, you know, I think those are the the basis that will make that alternative happen, but I, I really do think that it is only one breath away, it is only one thought away. Mm. All of the time, it's not like it's some distant, completely foreign uh, thing. I think it's a lot closer, it's, it's, it's literally our, you know, parallel universe, up close. But we see the world we as a, as a species are very much involved in this problem of competitive advantage. So we see the world through threat, through uh, shortage, through strategic positioning. So the visions are important, but the stepping stones there are what carries us. That's the you know, the, 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 the resiliency underneath. 
foundation. It's got to move from the point where we say, well, you know, uh, trust is, is because I, I trust you because I know what you're going to do. Coming to terms with that trust is because I don't know what you're going to do. Trust is unconditional. Yeah. Trust is about, it's, it's the unpredictability. It's that there's this extra dimension of feeling, of connectedness. That's a really good way to frame trust. I trust in you and have no idea what it is that you're going to do, but I trust you. Hmm.